Well, thank you for ministering to me this morning. That was really rich to hear your voices. And just one quick comment on the uh, family meeting uh, next uh, Sunday morning. We would really invite any of you who have been coming to Melanie Park or interested in being in a part of Melanie Park uh, to join us for that time. It's not exclusive for a certain set of people. Uh, we want everyone who's interested. Well, hi, Becca. It's good to see you. But we do want everyone who uh, is interested in coming. Yeah, Becca, why don't you stand up? Everybody wants to see you this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she will never return again, I think. <laughs> but uh, back to what I was saying. Next Sunday, we would really invite anyone to come to hear from the elders and ministry leaders just to kind of give you some uh, peek behind the curtain of some things that are going on, things to expect in the future, and just uh, a chance to keep everybody informed in the life and ministry of this church. So we invite you to, to come. So um, one of my family's favorite things to do, I grew up going to the lake. Uh, that was our vacation. Uh, there was a point in time where we lived in Graham, Texas, and uh, Possum Kingdom was right down the street. So we began going to Possum Kingdom Lake for our vacations, and I think pretty much every year of my childhood thereafter, we continued to go back to the lake no matter where we lived. And one of our favorite things to do when we would go to the lake, it was to find a nice, peaceful cove. We would then anchor the boat down, pull out lunch, have lunch together, and then maybe go for a swim while we're there. But, but we had to be careful because there's an almost imperceptible current in the lake. It, you wouldn't think so in a lake. It's just a body of water, but there's water that's moving constantly underneath. And so when you anchor down, you have to make sure you have a, a landmark, something that doesn't move, so that you can always keep an eye on it and make sure that your anchor doesn't come loose, and then you end up drifting in some dangerous territory that you might not be able to get out of, and you won't even realize it. Well, the writer of Hebrews has a similar concern for us this morning. He will give us the first five warnings that he will uh, uh, offer in the letter to the Hebrews um, at different points in time. It's a warning not to drift, not to drift into dangerous deception, because the reality is there is an almost imperceptible current of influences that exists in our world today. We all know we're flooded with any number of, of messages and, and media and advertisements imploring us to, to buy this, to believe that, to try this. And, and all of them, they always have some promise of some kind of enhancement to make life better, to make life more satisfying, to make life more secure. But it's safe to say, and I think it's important to say, that those messages don't only exist in the world. There are unhealthy influences that exist even in the church today. Things like that it's God's will to make sad people happy, to make rich or poor people wealthy, to make insecure people more self-confident, suggesting it's, it's God's will, it's our, our right to an abundant life, to live free of sickness and struggle and pain. Because, get this, it's God's primary goal, right? To give us our best life now. That's the message that we hear. And these messages, along with many others, 
are a dangerous deviation from sound doctrine. It takes what God says and it twists it to become what I want. The church has been infiltrated with moral compromise, with political pressure, with social agendas. Much of what we hear today is no longer anchored to the gospel. Making it easy for us, without even realizing it, to, to drift away into dangerous deception. So in order to prevent this from happening, we need to find a landmark, right? We need to find something that doesn't move. And the writer of Hebrews says that that landmark is Jesus Christ. It is his message of truth that we must listen to most. It's his walk of obedience that we should pay close attention to. Everything we need to know about who God is and his purpose in the world can be found finally and completely in Jesus Christ. We need to be encouraged that his message doesn't change, right? It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So listen closely. Look carefully and fix your eyes on Jesus. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come before you, and we ask that you would open our eyes to, to see carefully, that we would open our ears to listen closely, that you would open our hearts to the good news of the gospel that sadly in our world today has become a lesser issue among other things that have taken priority. Lord, would you change that this morning? Would you re-elevate the importance of the gospel truth loud and clear through your word? We need to hear it. We need to see it. We need to believe it. And so, Lord, let it be so. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Pick up where we left off last. I'd love for you to follow along. Verse 1 says this. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. I'm going to just pause there because there's a lot that's packed into this first verse. The, it begins by saying that for this reason, and when you see that kind of a phrase, it's like a signpost, right? That signpost is pointing you back to everything that was written in chapter 1. Everything written to highlight the supremacy of Christ, which is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. What we learned was that there have been many prophets who have spoken in many ways, but now there is one person who has spoken in one way. Over time, there was a developing aspect to the revelation but now that is final and complete in Jesus Christ. Everything points to him as the author and perfecter of our faith, the very hope of our salvation. And so here's the warning. Don't drift away. Don't take these gospel truths for granted and slowly drift away. Don't, don't lose sight of the landmark and slip into dangerous deception because these compromises and influences that surround us can be very subtle they 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 can almost be imperceptible 
For example, you might have heard a logic like this before. It goes something like this. You know, I think we should take the Bible seriously. I mean, that's important. But we shouldn't necessarily take it literally. Because the Bible was written to an ancient culture long ago, and there's so many things that are different in our modern society. Not to mention the fact that we've advanced so much in in technology and science. We, We know so much more than we used to, so we need to make sure that that truth is relevant as it relates to all these changes that have happened over time. And before you know it, we're changing what it said to make it say what we want it to be. See, we're so enamored, all of us, myself included, we're so enamored by new truths, by fresh experiences, by popular trends. It drives us. But the author of Hebrews is pointing us back. He's pointing us back to the unchanging truths of the Scripture, which should have been crystal clear as we finished up chapter 7, and he quotes seven Old Testament verses. In just nine of those verses, seven out of nine Old Testament quotes, he's not providing new information. He's reminding us of what has already been said. In fact, that's what he says in verse one, isn't it? He makes it clear when he says, we need to pay much closer attention to what we've already heard. See, the book of Jude has a very similar uh, admonition because it's At that that time, when that was written, there had been false teachers with a new message who have now infiltrated the church. And this is what Jude says in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity, and I want you to hear this with the urgency that I believe it was written with. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Don't miss that. Once for all handed down to the saints. Not evolving over time, but final and complete. There's nothing, nothing to be added to the apostolic teaching of the church. Don't drift away. Look at how he continues in verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved inalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The writer begins this section by talking about this unalterable truth that was given by the angels. Now, when he presents this, it's as if he understands, believes that his audience understands what he's talking about. And I do believe that they did. Because he's talking about a righteous law with a just punishment. Okay? A holy standard where every sin and disobedience receives a just punishment. Penalty. So when he's talking to an Hebrew audience, they know exactly what he's talking about, right? He's talking about the law of Moses. And apparently, that law of God was delivered through the mediation of an angel of God. We get a sense of that in Stephen's 
message when he was preaching in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Listen to what he says there. He says, this is the one, talking about Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with, here it is, the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, which is where the law was given, and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Later in that same sermon, in fact, just right before he was stoned to death, Stephen revisits it again in verse 52. Look at what he says. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who have previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. Like the writer of Hebrews, he's making the point that Israel accepted the law as a divine revelation through an angel, a law that was given to reveal the presence of sin and the condemnation that that sin deserves, a condemnation that they could not escape. Why? Because it was a law that they couldn't keep. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. How could they neglect so great a salvation. Knowing that Jesus Christ is the only possible solution for sin. His perfect life. His perfect life was the only perfect sacrifice acceptable for the forgiveness of sins. Taking the punishment that that law, that righteous law demands upon himself so that we could be made righteous through faith in him. We read it together earlier. He who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So are they going to accept a law that brings death and reject a Savior who brings life? Have they become so indifferent and distracted that they're no longer anchored to the truth of the gospel. The writer goes on to validate this revelation of the gospel as superior to the angelic revelation of the law. And he says that, that Jesus, as the one anointed by God, is the one who has revealed this truth. Like he said back in chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Before then, many prophets in many ways, but now one person, one way, final, complete. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus clearly communicated that he is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And that message was clearly understood by his disciples. If you want to flip on over to John, 1 John chapter 1, and I want you to listen to how far John goes in just these three verses to explain all the ways that this truth was undeniably validated. Okay, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning 
the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. They heard, they saw, they touched, they testified, they proclaimed. The truth was revealed by Jesus, it was confirmed by his disciples, and it was validated by God himself. It says there in our passage that God testified through signs and wonders and miracles. And we need to understand that these things didn't happen to to simply impress people. It was done as divine approval. These miracles had a purpose. And that purpose was to validate the identity of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit had the very same goal in mind. God doesn't give us his spirit simply to enhance our religious experience, to make our life better and more fulfilling. He gives us his spirit in order to equip us to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Living spirit-filled lives. Lives that put the gospel on display. Transforming us to become more like Christ, including the privilege to share in his sufferings. Now, as we've already seen, last few verses, I want you to notice, did you see the the Trinitarian support of the message of the gospel? I think it was very intentional. When you look back, you'll see it was spoken by Jesus. God testified. The Spirit affirmed. Father, Son, Spirit. If the law was spoken by angels and was legally binding, how much more is a word revealed by the Son? Validated by the Father, affirmed by the Spirit. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Look at how he continues in verse 5. It says in verse 5, For he did not subject the angels to the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man? that you remember him, or the Son of Man, that you are concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But here's what we do see. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So listen closely to what Jesus says and look carefully at what Jesus does. In order to make his point, the author begins by comparing angels to humanity. And as important as they are, 
The fact of the matter remains, God never gave angels dominion over the earth. That phrase there, world to come, literally means inhabited earth. So he's looking back to that commandment given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, page 1 of your Bible, right? It says this, beginning in verse 28, God blessed them, and, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. See, in view of that commission, I believe that's what the author has in mind as a backdrop. He then quotes from Psalm chapter 8 which is a beautiful song. It begins with the familiar words that we sing often in our songs. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, all the earth. David goes on from there to describe and and celebrate the wonder of God's creation, the the beasts of the field, the, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea. He's amazed He's amazed that God would give mankind the responsibility to steward such wonderful creation. He even asked the question, why would you do that, Lord? Why would you give us such an incredible privilege? Making us the crowning glory of creation. Making us in your image, created uniquely to live eternally in a life-giving relationship with you. It's a beautiful reflection until everything comes to a screeching halt in verse 8 of our passage. Look at that again where it says, but we do not yet see things subjected to him. Speaking of the dominion of mankind. In other words, something has gone terribly wrong. Things are not happening as God originally intended them to be. Because instead of responsible stewardship, humanity, quite frankly, has made a mess of things, haven't we? And so that's because the glory of God's creation, and as beautiful and wonderful as it is, was interrupted by the tragedy of man's sin. That's why things are not as he intended them to be. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Sinful humanity brought death and corruption into all of God's creation. Our sin is what introduced evil and disease and disorder into the world. And if you're honest and you take a close look, it seems like a last a lost cause until you stumble upon that three-little word in verse 8. We do not yet see everything as God intended it to be. Yet. 
That three-letter word should leap off the page when you read it. Because it means that there's more to this story. That it has not yet become what God has intended it to be. But God has a plan to restore completely what sin has destroyed. And the writer of Hebrews begins to unveil that truth in chapter 9. For the first time in his letter so far, he calls Jesus, he identifies him by name. He said he is the one who was made for a little while lower than the angels. In other words, the one who eternally existed temporarily took on the flesh of humanity. We see that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, when Paul writes and says, Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The revelation of God became visible to man. The creator took on the form of his creation. Look at how Paul continues in verse 8. Being found in the appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was born to die. He he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the solution, the one and only solution for the problem of sin. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He tells us, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he tasted death so that we could have eternal life. We know that because of Romans 5.19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. See, humanity brought sin into the world. Jesus brought salvation to the world. He tasted death for everyone so that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. So yes, the the world is not as God has intended it to be yet. But one day it will be. One day there will be a new heavens and a new earth and sin will be no more. One day there will be a return of the original creation as God intended. And I say that it's actually going to be better because there will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow, no more suffering or pain. In that day, God's people, you and I, will have dominion as heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. We will live eternally in his presence, flourishing in the life-giving relationship with God that we were created for. Stewarding the creation as he intended us to. Flourishing. That's when our best life begins. So I think we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to slowly drift away and lose sight of the gospel. 
So as we close, I want to give you three possible distractions that we need to be careful to avoid. And they're very simple, and they're very common to man. They are these. Being too familiar, too busy, too bored. Too familiar, too busy, too bored. We have some friends that live in Colorado Springs, and in the summer, we love to go visit them because they live smack dab in the middle of the mountains. I mean, it was immaculate. You could literally look out their window and see Pikes Peak. You could drive down the road and go to the Gardens of the Gods. And, and for us, this was, this was a treat. I mean, we loved it. We felt like we were surrounded by beauty. But for them, it was something they saw every single day. And it had become so familiar that it was no longer captivating to them. And we need to be careful because the same can be true for us. Many of us have grown up in the church. We know the stories. We've read the verses. And the gospel can become so familiar that it's no longer captivating. It can become ordinary and left unattended. Our devotion will drift away. Because it's the heart of what we believe. The gospel can become too familiar, but sometimes life can become too busy. I mean, we don't have time to be in a small group. We're doing good to make it to church from time to time, right? And it's not like we're distracted by things that are inherently evil. I mean, good grief, it's good things. But we're exhausted by trying to keep up with all the travel teams, all the high school sports, all the busy work schedule, all the family commitments, all the personal health. We need to have rest. We need to have exercise. And these things aren't bad. But left unattended, our devotion will drift away. And here's why. We end up taking things that should be most important and we make them optional. And we take things that are optional and we end up making them most important. The gospel can become too familiar. Life can become too busy. And sometimes the Bible can just become too boring. After all, we know it's important to have a quiet time. And, but when we, we try to, to, to do what we're, we're supposed to do, we end up falling asleep. Anytime we get still, we start thinking about all the thousands of things that need to get done and not what we're trying to do in that moment. And so as a result, our efforts become duty instead of a heartfelt devotion. And our spiritual life isn't fulfilling anymore. Too familiar, too busy, too bored. And I'll be honest with you, I do not have five easy steps to resolve these distractions. Primarily because... They're distractions for me as well. These are things that are common that we all struggle with from time to time. But here's what I'm learning along the way. And, and so please listen carefully to this. We don't resolve these issues by trying to stir up our affections, okay? This is not a do better, try harder, just love Jesus more message. You got that? Because here's something that I do believe. Our affections only change when we better understand his affections for us. Just think about all the songs we just sang. 
Did that stir affection in you? Why? Because they were songs, every single one of them, about his love for you. You don't stir that up in yourself. You respond to his initiative. Don't try to make yourself love Jesus more. Just try to understand how much Jesus loves you. It makes me think of that passage in Luke chapter 7. Y'all all know the story. Whenever the woman comes in off the street and begins washing the feet of Jesus, they're in the house of a Pharisee and they're disgusted with what they see. So Jesus tells a parable, and at the end of the parable, you may remember his closing comments were powerful. He said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven little loves little. Our affection towards Jesus is a response to his love for us. You see, the more we understand the love he has for us, the deeper our affections will be for him. So think deeply about the gift of God's grace, his steadfast love, his boundless peace. Consider how your life is wholly bound on his. Day by day, fix your eyes on Jesus and know that he is the lover of your soul and his affections are deep for you. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you that we don't have to stir up affections for ourselves. That this isn't a matter of us just trying to do better, to try harder, to do more. But instead, you want us to do less of our own thing and more of seeing what you did for us. Celebrating your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love. And allowing your love for us to stir our affections for you. Lord, help us not to become too familiar with that that is no longer moving. Help us to not become so busy that we never stop to consider it. Lord, help us not to become so distracted that the things of the world become more exciting than the truths of your word. Lord, help us to see that clearly. And follow you faithfully. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a seat for just a second if you would. I want to share something with you in closing that I hope is as significant uh, for you as it was for me. Terry and I read a book called Lover, Jesus, Lover of Our Soul. <laughs> it was powerful. And this is one of the things that kind of helped reshape my thinking. And here's one section as an example. He wants you to turn your attention to him because he finds your face your focused attention to him lovely. Since this reverses the normal reasons we have for focusing on Jesus, we tend to think of how we might benefit. We want him to help, please, soothe, maybe even delight us. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. We pray, oh Lord, show me your face. Let me hear your voice and, and your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. This is absolutely right too. However, this, there is, this is the other side of the relationship. He wants us. And surely, we want to please him, to delight him, to satisfy him, don't we? Of course we do. When we think of it, we want nothing more. The difficulty is believing he wants us. Now listen to this. I'm going to portray to you something that they've written here. Oh gosh, it's 7.30 already. I'm late, too late for quiet time. I suppose the Lord will understand. Show me your face. But, I, but I'm too busy. <laughs> Show me your face. 
but you've got lots of other disciples. Why can't you pick one of those whose alarm clock went off on time? Show me your face. But, but I haven't had time to shave. Lots of people are not going to want to see my face at this time. Show me your face. But, but I, my face is not worth seeing. Show me your face. Lord, even if I don't like my face very much, let alone what's behind it, and you have much higher standards than me, show me your face, for your face is lovely. Oh, no, it's not. It's lopsided. It's blotchy. I've got revolting spots on my forehead. Show me your face. Your face is lovely. You're not going to give up, are you, Lord? Show me your face. Your face is lovely. Oh, I think you've got my attention now, but, but what can I say? Let me hear your voice. Well, I think that's happening, isn't it? I mean, I can't imagine you're enjoying it particularly, though. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet. But I have a sore throat, and seriously, I don't have much to say. Your, your voice is sweet. Okay, Lord, you win. This isn't about me, right? This is about you. You just want me. Well, I love you. And your face is beautiful to me. And your voice is lovelier than any other voice. Thank you for waiting. Amen. I would encourage you to have that conversation this week with the one who finds you lovely, who delights in you. You don't have to worry about what you look like or what you have to say because he just wants to see you and be seen by you and be loved by him. Let him speak truth into your life. It's a gift. We pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being together. Thank you for pursuing us so that this is not a dependent on us finding you, of us, uh, seek, of us somehow earning our way, but you have drawn near to us, that you have run after us. You want to know us. You want us to be known by you, seen by you. Lord, help us to Hear your voice speak deeply into our lives. You are the lover of our soul. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.